I love telling camping stories. I'm going camping in two weeks. I found a way to tell a camping story before I even go camping. And trust me, it's going to work. I ran it with by with one of my friends yesterday. He said it makes sense, so hopefully it makes sense. I love camping, and I love camping in places where you have no idea where you are. I like to be in the middle of nowhere. People ask, well, do you take a phone with you? Well, no, it wouldn't mean anything, because there's no cell phone coverage where I go. I've been to a number of different places. Last year, my buddy Brian and I went to a Bisco Tasing. You all know where Bisco is? Yeah. Well, it's, uh, it's, there's a road that runs. So if you picture Sudbury and Timmins, halfway between, there's a logging road called the Salton Side Road that goes over to Chaplow. And just south of that logging road is a ghost town on the CN line. It's called Bisco. There's 22 annual residents there. 22. And I met a few of them. That's great. <laughs> we went last year and we thought we'd do a canoe trip, but we went in the end of November and the, the, the water was hard. So we, we had to break through the ice for water, so we, we camped on top of it. So this year we're going a month earlier, and when you plan these trips, you need maps, especially um, these remote trips. So you start with the big map of Ontario where it helps you to find the place because no one knows where Bisco area is to start with. But once you get there, uh, you need topographical maps to help you know where you're going. And that's what I've brought here. I've brought my three topo maps that have uh, the picture, uh, the, uh, the route we're taking on them. So you can have a look at that after if you're a geek like me when it comes to maps. But each, uh, each uh, I don't know, it's about two centimeters square. It represents a kilometer, either on the water or the land. And so that's there. Actually, I have a, a slide that shows my entire trip where we're thinking of going. I'll take this down so people can see. Maybe the, oh, hey, okay, there we go. I think the next slide, the computer seems to be slow. Yeah, so what I did in order to fit these, my route on from three topographical maps onto one map is I took pictures of them so and that's actually on purpose. <laughs> <laughs> I scaled them all up to the same size, I mashed them together and I plotted out my route and the one map I had to use is upside down because they put south at the top because it's a river map and that's the way you'd run down the river. So it's backwards, so that's why it's backwards on the screen. But these maps show it. Um, but even these maps don't get you as, as, as much detail as you want because, here, I'll show you something. I don't know if you've noticed this, but this is a canoe trip. And from here on the river to here, it's not blue. Um, it's green, which means we're going over land. And I had to get from this water to this water at some point to make a nice round trip. And so I had to get a little more detail. So I went to Ontario Topographical Maps online. When you zoom in far enough, they have satellite imagery overlay. And when I got there, I was looking up and down to see how we can get across. I found a four-wheeler trail. Don't we live in a wonderful world where I can zoom in using satellite imagery and find a four-wheeler trail? <laughs> but even that level of detail doesn't mean much if you've never been out stumbling through the trees with a canoe on your head. It's a whole different game. A uh, 1.3 kilometer portage there on the 
feels a lot bigger when you're weighed down with your food barrel on the back and your other pack on your front and the canoe on your head and you're bouncing off trees and you're stumbling through. It can feel a lot different, but once you get used to it, you get used to it. There's different, we're talking about perspective here, right? From big perspective to small perspective. And the way I'm tying it to this series is I'm going to take a big perspective, great big topographical map look this morning at the story of the Bible. Because oftentimes when it comes to the Bible, we spend our life looking at individual trees. Which is fine. This I'm not criticizing that method. I think both methods are good. You need maps. You need to be on the ground. You need it all. But uh, we, for the last three weeks, for example, we spent it looking at the parable of the uh, prodigal son. That's the one. We were looking at the parable of the prodigal son. Three weeks we were staring at that tree. <coughs> We were focused in on one thing. Oftentimes, when you open your My Daily Bread, or maybe you have a Bible app on your phone, it gives you the verse of the day, you get one tree to look at. But you lose sight of the big overall picture. We're going to be starting today a five-week series, which will take us to Advent, if you can believe it, with a couple uh, guest speaker mornings for my camping trip holiday. Uh, we, uh, we're starting a new series, and we're going to be looking at the short stories that Jesus told about the kingdom of God. And so today is kind of the setup. There's six short stories. We're going to cover them in the next four weeks because they are very short. Uh, but they're going to give us insight into the kingdom of God and what the kingdom of God is. But in order to set them up, we need this broader style look at what's going on. So let's do that. Let's look at some of the big maps of the Bible. If you were asked to explain the Bible in just three or four or five points, I don't know what you would say. People have tried to use different methods to get there. There's a few different ones. One of them, probably one of the most famous ones for uh, evangelical churches like ours, is the four spiritual laws. Have you heard of the four spiritual laws? They are true and they are good. Um, the first law, the, fir the first of the four spiritual laws is this. God loves you and created you to know Him. Amen. Second spiritual law is this. You're a filthy sinner. <laughs> and so am I. And our rebellion and our sin separates us from... I can't believe I just called my church filthy sinners. I'm sorry. <laughs> our rebelliousness and our sinfulness separates us from God. So enter Jesus, who came to reunite us to God through his death on the cross. So that point four, when we put our faith in Jesus, we receive salvation and enter into the fullness of God's plan for our lives. That's true. It's one way to describe the story. You might have noticed that it's a bit selfish, though. Because that telling of the story is all about me or all about you. It puts us individually at the center of the story. Where the story of the Bible is bigger than that. I'm not saying don't use the four spiritual laws. They're great in their place. It's great to think through the, um, the Bible in that perspective. But it's a little bit selfish. And it's also incomplete. There's so much missing. If you were writing that as a summary of the Bible and handing it in for a course, your teacher would say, well, you missed huge swaths of Scripture. Look what you're missing. God's plan is not just for me, and not just for you, 
It's for the entire created universe. It's for everything. There's this beautiful, beautiful poem in Colossians 1 that kind of gives us a picture of how big God's plan is. It says, Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. For through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. Skipping ahead a little bit. He existed before anything else. He holds. This is Jesus we're talking about. Jesus holds all creation together. For through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. Christ is also the head of the church, of which we are a representation. Jesus is the head of the church. Christ is the head of the church, which is his body. He is the beginning, the supreme over all who rise from the dead. He is the first in everything. And then here's here's the main point with respect to this map that I just gave you of the Bible. For God in all of his fullness was pleased to live in Christ. And through him, God reconciled everything to himself. Not just me, not just people who confess. God reconciled everything. God cares about the entire created order from the grass to the people. So it's bigger than that. So uh, there's a theologian, N.T. Wright, that I, I, uh, I like a lot of his stuff. Um, just not what he said about the last parable, but that's another story. I like, I like a lot of this stuff, and he has suggested a different way of looking at this grand story, the big topographical map that is the Bible. He said, consider it like a play in five acts. The first act of the play is creation. God created everything we see, everything that exists. There are two categories in the world. There's God, and then there's everything God created. That's it. There's two categories. So in the beginning, the first act of the play, God created. And when it was done, he said, oh, this is very good. I've done a fine job. The second act in this play is the story of human rebellion, of disobedience. Uh, It's in Genesis chapter 3 with Adam and Eve taking from the fruit from the tree that they're not supposed to take. And it's played out again and again and again and again. Human disobedience. The third act is the story of Israel. God decided to choose a specific people and say, you're the one through whom I'm going to reach the world. I am going to, um, to extend my mission to the entire created order through you, Abraham, and your many sons that you will have and sing songs about. <laughs> Thank you for recognizing that reference. The third act is Jesus. He's not distinct, and he is distinct from that which preceded him. What I mean by that is Jesus is God and man together, united. We're going to talk about that a little bit more in a second. But in another sense, Jesus was Jewish. He was the the culmination, the fulfillment. All of Israel come to a point in one person. God's rescue plan come to a peak. And then the fifth act is the act that we're living in now. It begins with the pouring out of the Spirit on all believers, creating the church, and it continues into the present. And N.T. Wright would say that we are living in the fifth act of the play that we have to improvise. We know the first four and a half acts. 
And now we're left to improvise. But fortunately, we have the spirit of the author living within us. So that's a more helpful, broader, bigger picture of the Bible. But I'm going to give you one more, one more map before we go on that will help us understand the kingdom of God, which is what this series is all about. And this is a simpler story. It was Scott McKnight, in case you're curious. I don't come up with all this stuff just on myself. Um, <laughs> uh, it's Scott McKnight that, that really illuminated my mind to this version of the story. The first part of the story is that God was king. When God created Adam and Eve in the garden all those years ago, he was in charge. He was the king. He was the one that Adam and Eve served. And they were uh, deputized by the king. I'm mixing my metaphors. But they were given authority by the king to look after and care for the creation. Everything. But Adam and Eve were not happy being godly. They wanted to be godlike. They wanted to take the throne for themselves. That's essentially what that act of disobedience is. They weren't just happy being God's underlings in control. They wanted, you know, if you eat this fruit, you'll be like God. Ooh, sounds good. So they took the throne. So God started again with Abraham and his family and said, listen, I am your God. You are my people. I am your king. You are my subjects. I am the God you need. And so God led them from Abraham into Egypt, out of Egypt, through and so on, all the way through this history of the Bible with God being their king. God leading them. This was the first part of the story. God was always supposed to be king. But humans always try to take over the throne. We always try to knock God off his throne and take control for ourselves. In the book of Samuel, this happens. Samuel was a prophet. He understood that God was king and that he was kind of this uh, representative that, that uh, went between the people and God to, to uh, kind of as a mediator. He was a prophet. So Samuel um, had these boys that were kind of scoundrels and the people got nervous and the people said, look, you're old. That's not a nice thing to say to a prophet. The people said to Samuel, look, you're old. Your sons aren't like you. Give us a king to judge us like all the other nations have. Say, we want a king. Samuel was displeased with their request because in the first place he was called old. And in the second place, uh, he, they pointed out that his sons weren't behaving very well. So you can imagine how crotchety the old prophet would be. And so he goes to God and says, um, uh, he was displeased and he went to the Lord for guidance. And the Lord said, do everything they say to you. They're not, they are rejecting me, God says, not you. And then here's the point. They don't want me to be their king any longer. That's what God says. Quotation from 1 Samuel uh, chapter 8, verse 7. They don't want me to be their king any longer. Ever since I brought them out of Egypt, they've continually abandoned me, followed other gods. Now they're giving you the same treatment. Do what they want you to. But warn them about what it'll be like when they take a king. And so he does. And so the second big picture in the story of the Bible is human beings take over or usurp. I like the word usurp. Just means to take over, to sit on, to scooch over and take the throne. 
Um, the, the first act, God was king. The second part of the story, humans take over the throne. So you have Saul, and you have David, and you have Solomon, and you have Rehoboam, and all the, and the split kingdom. And then it's a story of an incredible downward slide until eventually the Assyrians knock out the northern kingdom and the Babylonians knock out the southern kingdom. Turns out having a human king in charge doesn't work very well for God's people. God wanted to be their king. They wanted to have a king of their own that wasn't God, so God allowed them to experience how it would be. And it turned out tragically. Third part of the story, in Jesus, God became king of his people again. Because like I said, Jesus is absolutely God. Well, at the same time, he's completely human. What a gracious thing for God to do. When Jesus walked into Jerusalem, uh, or, sorry, rode the donkey into Jerusalem that last week before his death, it was the arrival of a true king, the king over God's people. When Jesus was crucified on a cross, when you know the sign they put above his head was uh, king of the Jews. The pagans meant it as a kind of a, a joke, a sarcastic little <laughs> king of the Jews. But it was more true than they knew. Because in Jesus, God became king again. All of a sudden, God was in charge. Yet he was still a king that we could see. He was still a king that we could touch. God's gracious with us. And if there's a king, there's a kingdom. And so we hear about the kingdom of God, and that's the point of this series. We're going to be looking at the stories that Jesus told about the kingdom of God, but we need to clear away some things right at the start to put things in a little bit of a better perspective. What is the kingdom of God? Um, we talked about this at our prayer meeting uh, Wednesday, a couple Wednesday nights ago. We're going to go into more detail on it in the Sunday mornings to come. But when, when you initially think of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, first of all, let me tell you, the kingdom of God in your Bible and the kingdom of heaven in your Bible are identical for the most part. They're the same thing. Um, the Jewish people really didn't like people uttering the word God loosely and freely. And so when Matthew wrote about the kingdom of God, he swapped in the word heaven so he wouldn't be needlessly offensive. Right? So, he called, so the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, when you read this in your Gospels, we're talking about the same thing. When we talked about it on Wednesday, we realized that the, the kind of understanding that we have about the kingdom of heaven is, oh, it's that place that you go after you die. Is the kingdom of God that place you go to after you die? We'll get back to that before the end of the service. But for now, I want to say it's more than that. The kingdom of heaven is much more than that. And it was incredibly important for Jesus I just spent a couple days at McMaster um, doing some class time for a course I'm taking. And we were there for two full days on campus, uh, Friday and Saturday. And we had a guest speaker the first morning. And then the first afternoon, we had to present to the class in 15 minutes or less one of the papers that we had written so we could critique each other and discuss our topics. The next day in the morning, we all had to present another project that we had done so we can critique each other and talk about it. Then the next afternoon, we presented another project that we had done so we could all... So it was... And there was 10 of us in the class. 
So in a day and a half, 30 presentations. It was, yeah, thank you, Tina. That's exactly how I felt. So, and people like to talk. Some of us were preachers, right? It was really funny. One of my friends that's in my class who isn't a preacher, uh, we were walking back from getting coffee. He's like, you preachers have the edge in this. You can just go up and talk without thinking. You're used to it. I'm like, yeah, it's true. We can. But, uh, so Studebaker, uh, Dr. Studebaker, our teacher, he had a phone with a timer on it. And when the timer went off, it sounded like an air raid siren. And so he's like, we, at the beginning of our first set of presentations, he said, if this gets too long, it's not going to be pretty, so you have to, you have to be short. Then in our middle presentation, again, he's like, this cannot go too long, I'm setting the air raid siren, it'll stop you if you, it's, and then at the beginning of our third set, same thing, I have my, I have my air raid siren, this will stop you. He said it at the beginning, the middle, and the end, because it was in critical importance that we don't let this thing drag on or we'd never get out of there. It's nothing quite like having an air raid siren go off at the end of your talk. It would certainly make the church feel different when, oh, I don't know what time you want to pick for my sermon to be closed. Anyways. The reason I said that is that Jesus goes in, reminds and reminds and reminds and reminds people all throughout his ministry from the beginning to the end and in the middle about the significance of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. In Mark, the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, once John the Baptist has done his thing and Jesus was ready to start his public ministry, this is what we read. The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near, so repent and believe the good news. This is how Jesus started his public ministry, by saying, the kingdom of God is drawn near. So repent, stop your claiming the throne from yourself, for yourself, and believe the good news. Follow and join the kingdom of God. At the end of Jesus' ministry, if you read Acts chapter 1, there's this little bit of time where Jesus has risen from the dead, before he ascends into heaven. He has a crazy body that can both eat fish and walk through walls, which would be really fun to test drive. But in this very sensitive time where he only has a little bit of time to encourage his disciples on what they need to do, here's what he did. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. Because that's what was important to Jesus. And in the middle of Jesus' ministry... He told stories about the kingdom of God. The weeks to come, we'll be reading things like, uh, you know what the kingdom of God is like? It's like a little bit of yeast that's worked into a lump of dough, and it gets through the whole dough, and it rises and becomes something bigger. You know, the kingdom of God is like a little tiny mustard seed that's really small and tiny, but when it's, when it's planted in the ground, it becomes this great big huge tree that birds can come and take shelter in its branches. We hear all, and Jesus tells all these stories about what the kingdom of God is like. And it's a kingdom that we're in now. I wanted to pick up on a text kind of to introduce these stories. It's from Luke chapter 17, 20 to 21. One day the Pharisees asked Jesus, when will the kingdom of God come? And I've heard similar things, by the way, from church people. You know, when is this world finally going to be done? 
When is it going to be over? When are we finally going to, when will all this wicked, bad, evil stuff be done and we can finally just have everything set right? When are these bodies of flesh and blood that let us down as we age going to finally be over so that we can experience life? When is the kingdom of God finally going to come? As if it's something in the future that we have to get to. And Jesus replied, oh, the kingdom of God can't be detected by visible signs. You're not going to be able to say, oh, here it is, or maybe it's over there. For the kingdom of God is already among you. Isn't that awesome? The kingdom of God is already among you. Now, people have interpreted that verse in different ways. Some people say the kingdom of God is within you. But Jesus never talks about that inward sort of thing. It doesn't make sense in context doesn't resonate. Some people translate it, the kingdom is within your grasp. You're almost there. Don't worry. You can take hold of it. That doesn't really take the context into consideration. The best way to interpret this is the kingdom of God is already among you. Because remember, in Jesus, the king is here. The king is back. The king is returned. At the beginning, God was his creation's king. But then the people demanded an earthly king and it went horribly wrong. But in Jesus Christ, the king returns. And when there's a king, there's a kingdom. And when they said, oh, when is this kingdom of God coming? I imagine Jesus had like a little bit of a half smile on the side of his mouth when he said this. And you, you know what? You're not going to think it's, it's here or it's over there. You're not going to detect it by visible signs. <laughs> kingdom of God's already among you. Because Jesus was among them. The kingdom of God. Well, here's what it takes to have a kingdom. This was from uh, Dr. Victor Shepard, one of my favorite uh, seminary professors. He used to say it takes three things for there to be a kingdom. You need a king, and Jesus is our king. You need subjects to the king, and those of us who have committed our lives to Jesus are the king's subjects. And you need land. You can't have a kingdom without territory. For ancient Israel, that land was that strip of fertile land over on the uh, eastern side of the Mediterranean Sea. But now, the kingdom of God has exploded throughout the world. And I can tell you with all truth and honesty, the kingdom of God is right here. The kingdom of God is among us because Jesus is present by His Spirit among His subjects. Wherever we go, the kingdom of heaven is there. Now, I'm not putting off the future aspect of this kingdom. We're going to get there. But I just want to pause for a second and think, what does it mean that wherever we as subjects of King Jesus are together in this world, that's where the kingdom of God is? The implications of this are mind-blowing. When you're in the grocery store, you bump into another person you know that, that follows Jesus, whether from this congregation or not. Someone who follows Jesus, two of you get talking. What did, were, uh, two or three are gathered together. There I am in the midst of them. That's where the kingdom of God is. All of a sudden, in the grocery store, that little place where you two are becomes the territory of the kingdom of God. Because God's presence is there among you. We are holier than we ever realized because God is within us. God is among us. 
What's that? <laughs> Wouldn't that still be like the kingdom of God is within? It's both. It's both. Yes. 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 The spirit of God uh, comes on every believer. Absolutely. And, and God is within us. But it's often spoke. It's usually spoken of in the plural in the New Testament. We're told that you, plural, are the temple of the spirit. We, like living stones, are being built into a temple. Um, yes, the spirit of the living God dwells in me. But in a more profound sense, he dwells among us when we're together. Both are true. So entering the kingdom. If the kingdom is something here and now, how do you enter it? Jesus spoke about this. We've been looking at this at our Wednesday night studies. You know, unless you enter the kingdom of God, like unless you approach the kingdom of God like a little child, you won't enter it. What does it mean to enter the kingdom of heaven? Well, given everything we've looked at, I have a few suggestions. The first thing is this. We need to recognize that like Adam and Eve and like every other human being throughout creation, it's our natural tendency to want to shove God off his throne. It's our natural desire, if God is seated on this throne, to just take a look at our life and say, you know what, I got this. I'll take it. That's our natural tendency. Sometimes we pray like this. This is what I want, God, so just shove over. I got this. Can you make it happen, by the way? This is our natural tendency, is to take charge of our lives for ourselves. The first part of entering the kingdom of heaven is to recognize that we need to be godly, not God-like. We don't need to take that throne back because God knows more than we do what we need. We have a choice who we're going to follow. We can follow Adam and Eve in taking the throne for ourselves, or we can follow God and allowing his rule to, to claim our lives. In 1 Corinthians 15, it's brought into really stark comparison. You see, just as death came into the world through a man, speaking about Adam, now the resurrection from the dead has begun through another man, speaking about Jesus. Just as everyone dies because we all belong to Adam, everyone who belongs to Christ will be given new life. The first step of entering the kingdom of God is recognizing that you are not going to be the king of your life, of your plans, of your future, of your family. It is stepping aside and allowing God his rightful place. Because just like God said to Samuel way back in those days, you know what? Um, if they want a king, give it to them. God will not impose his rule on our life without our consent. That's not how lovers work. That's not what lovers do. Lovers don't force themselves on another person. God went through Samuel and said, you know what? If they want a king, they've been rejecting me for a long time. Give them what they want. Just warn them it's not going to be pretty. And they suffer the consequences. If you want to lead your own life, God's not going to take it from you. The consequences won't be pretty, but he will let you have it. The choice is ours, whether we will surrender to the kingdom. So it's surrendering to the rightful king. Oftentimes this is called becoming a Christian or being saved or being born again. But it's that moment when we all come to a place in our lives. I, I know most of you in here have come to this moment. I don't know all of you. But it's the moment in your life where you, where you pray 
Lord Jesus, you are my king. I am not going to take your place anymore. I'm going to follow you instead. In that moment, we are born again. We are given new life. We are restored. And then we become disciples of the king. We, we learn about the king and the kingdom. We study the maps, right? We try to understand the story of the Bible, which is an ongoing, lifelong process. And we recognize where our place is in it. And we continually grow in our spirituality as we come together in worship and we go out to, 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 to walk through his kingdom wherever we go. We become disciples of the king. But finally... We have hope because the kingdom of God as we see it right now isn't finished. We have some pretty glorious moments of praise and worship. We have some pretty glorious moments where we encourage each other and we help each other. I've been blessed so much these last couple of weeks because you've been sneaky and blessing our families. Thank you so much. There's some beautiful, glorious moments in, in, our, in our life. But there is still a kingdom yet to come. The kingdom of God started with Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and sending of the Spirit. It's been going for the last 2,000 years, but it's not there yet. We still have a future hope, and that's what powers us as we go through this life, this hope that the pain, the suffering, the sin that we see that influences this world it's not going to have the final word, but the kingdom still has to come in fullness. The kingdom of heaven isn't just that place you go to after you die, but it's certainly not less than that. It's something that begins here and now. So I hope this map has been helpful. Not this map, although if you want to know where I'm camping, I'd be happy to walk through my route. But I hope the overall map of scripture has got you thinking about what the overall story of God is in our place in at our place in the kingdom of God. You may need to ask yourself, have you surrendered yet? Have you come to that point in your life where you've recognized that I'm not going to try to knock God off the throne. I'm going to submit to his rule. It's as simple as in faith bowing before God and saying, I want you to be the Lord of my life. That's what it takes. That starts you on your entrance into the kingdom of heaven. Are you being discipled? Or are you just happy to be in the club? Are, are, is your life progressing towards godliness? Are you seeking to be uh, faithful subjects to the rightful king? Or are you just kind of happy with your life where it is now and are stalled? Part of the kingdom of God is being a disciple and discipling others. In the weeks to come, we're going to look at more detail about what the kingdom of God looks like. We're going to look at those six short stories that Jesus told about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. It's like this. It's like yeast. It's like a mustard seed and so on and so forth. But for now, I, I, think, it's, I think it's enough to close with that hymn that we sang, All Hail King Jesus. Yvonne picked the set list, but I picked that one. And I hope when we sing it, just this part, I'm just going to play it on the piano and just sing that beginning part of it. I hope it will take on a new depth of meaning for you. Let's pray. King Jesus, 
We acknowledge you as our rightful King and Lord. We recognize our own sinfulness, our desire to rule our lives for ourselves, and we repent of that afresh. Lord Jesus, take the place of highest honor in our life. Help us daily to surrender to your rule and not our own desires. Make us, Lord, the subjects of the kingdom of God that you want us to be so that we might be participants in your mission in this world as the kingdom of God grows and expands in mysterious ways that you ordain. Lord, we love you. We praise you. We're about to honor you to the best of our abilities in the song we're going to sing. In Jesus' name, amen. This hymn, by the way, All Hail King Jesus, was number one in the hymn book that I grew up with.